Good morning, church. Hey! <laughs> Jacob and worship team, thank you so much for leading us in worship through song. Let us pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the mighty name of Jesus. No other name we know to come to you in but Jesus. We come to praise, worship, and adore you for who you are. For you are God all by yourself. Lord, help us to be hospitable to one another without complaint, serving by the strength that you supply, so that in all things you may be glorified, letting the joy of the Lord be our strength, with the peace of God ruling in our hearts. Father, I thank you that you're perfecting everything concerning us. Anoint us with fresh oil this morning. Satisfy us with good things so that our youth will be renewed like the eagles. In our old age, may we still bear fruit and be fresh and flourishing. With a long life, you will satisfy us. Father, place a hedge of protection around us in our households. I thank you that the angel of the Lord encamps around about us and delivers us from all evil, from the snare of the fowler, from every pestilence, and that no plague will come near our dwelling. Because we abide in you and delight ourselves in you, you give us the desires of our hearts. And because we humble ourselves, you will exalt us in due season. I thank you, Father, that we can cast all our cares upon you, for you care for us. Father, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. God, I can't even imagine the health challenges some members and loved ones are going through. Jackie Everett, Janice Hobby's mother, Jason Huntley's mother, our dear Helen McIntosh, Lynn Keener, Vanessa Palujacek, Jeannie Smith, Daphne Wright, Jim and Florence Wells, Shirley Childs, Fran Jones, Johnny Christian, Walter Carter, Susan McCormick, Frank Sandy, Carolyn Thompson, Kathy, Emily's mother, Anel's daughter, Cindy, Margaret Madison, and others, Lord. We lift them before you now at this time. Lord, may they remember your promise in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, which says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Protect them from Satan's lies and discouragement. Continue to be with and strengthen them. May you be glorified in their lives, Lord. Father, for those that have children that don't know you yet, we continue to pray your promises in Jeremiah 20, 31, 16 through 17, which says, But I, the Lord, say to dry your tears. Someday your children will come home from the enemy's land. Then all you have done for them will be greatly rewarded. So do not lose hope. I, the Lord, have spoken. Hallelujah. Father, for those, Father God, just as Solomon asked of God to give your servant a discerning heart to govern over your people and distinguish between right and wrong in 1 Kings 3, 9, we ask that you do the same for Pastor Tim as he shepherds our church. Be with him, Father, as he comes to deliver your message this Sunday. May we listen with attentive ears, burn the word of God in our hearts, 
some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we at Fellowship Bible Church will trust in the name of the Lord our God, according to Psalms 20, verse 7. Church, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Father God, for hearing and answering our prayers in the precious mighty name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you, Myra. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. That is uh, three years old through fifth grade can make their way up there and um, they have their own lessons and small group teaching time uh, upstairs. Parents pick them up upstairs at the end of the service. A few things going on in the life of the church for you to uh, know about. Some of them are in the bulletin, so I always encourage you to make note of those things. We did make a change to the bulletin in that for this evening, the youth will have a Super Bowl party that will be on campus at 6 o'clock. Um, there is no kids' ministry, though, this evening. So that is a change from when we printed the bulletins. No elementary school, preschool, kids' ministry this evening but the youth will um, have their Super Bowl party on campus um, this evening. Then in future weeks, uh, just it's a busy season, big things going on. Uh, next week is our congregational meeting, uh, next Sunday evening. We need you to sign up for the Chili Cook-Off. That is a actual competition with judges and prizes. And so if you think your pot of chili is going to be the best, go ahead and sign up in the sheet at the back of the room and uh, bring, bring your best for the competition. But we also need desserts and we need some sandwiches to go along with that meal. And so um, please uh, sign up in the back of the room today if you are able to bring any of those things. Um, everyone in this room here today is welcome to be in that room next Sunday for that congregational meeting. If you're brand new to the church or if you've been a member here for 50 years, you are welcome because our congregational meetings are not a setting where we vote on, on issues that require membership only to be there to vote. These are going to be ministry presentations on a number of different issues related to the ministry ongoing within the church. And so we'd, um, it, you're more than welcome, anyone, to be there. We'd love for you to be there. Um, then the Sunday after that is our missions conference weekend, and that will include both Saturday and Sunday events. Saturday morning, We'll have breakfast, we'll have um, uh, a s sessions for adults, three different missions-focused sessions Saturday morning, um, which will end in a lunch. And during those adult missions-oriented sessions, the kids will have their own mission-focused events. And uh, Rika and our kids' leaders are leading our kids through a missions-focus to, um, to teach them about the importance of spreading the gospel to all nations, what life on the mission field is like, um, those sorts of things. So um, at all ages, there is something Saturday morning that is the 25th uh, for you. And then Sunday, the 26th, we'll also have um, a, a special guest speaker that morning from Campus Crusade for Christ, an evangelistic and discipleship ministry that um, does ministry all over the world. Started as a campus-focused college ministry and has broadened its horizons to do all sorts of ministry and what we'll focus on is the Jesus Film Project, which is a media ministry. Um, additionally, there's going to be a movie that night from the Jesus Film. Um, one more thing to know about on the schedule, 
Um, the, uh, there is a church yard sale this spring. It will be March, it will be March 25th. That's coming up in a few weeks. So if you have items to donate to the yard sale, you can start donating, donating those this week, bringing them to the back building. We have some tables, some areas up there. Come during regular church office hours, which is 9 to 4, Monday through Thursday, 9 to 12 on Friday. And you can bring items if you need a special time, then call the church office and we can try to work something out. Um, but yeah, we need donations for the yard sale. That yard sale is going to be raising funds for a mission trip to Romania that will take place um, June 30th through July either 11th or 13th. We'll have applications open for that trip next week. We are allowing our older high school students to go. It's not going to be specifically a youth trip. We want adults to go as well, but it, the minimum age for that trip is 16, and that will be um, 12 or 13 days-ish as we work out some more details on that. So save that date if you're all interested in being a part of a ministry overseas into Ukraine and or into Romania with also a little bit of focus on what the money that we have sent overseas that has gone into Ukraine um, and how we're using um, our partnerships in Romanian churches to support refugees in Ukraine. Um, there's going to be, you're going to be able to see a little bit about what God has been doing through those church connections, through the money that our church has spent, the partnerships we have to minister not just in Romania, but in Ukraine in this season of crisis. So it's going to be a cool trip. Um, you'll be hearing more and more about that in the next uh, couple of weeks. But as we talk about the uh, missions conference and the Jesus Film Project, I told you it's a media ministry. Um, their goal is to reach people for Christ through various forms of media. And so both um, in our services and a couple times through social media, we're going to expose you to some of the evangelistic shorts that they have produced. Um, so this, I'm about to show just a short clip. It's about one minute. That's a conversation starter. Just to start to introduce you to the Jesus Films resources at a greater level and see what all they're doing beyond just the movie that, that many of us are familiar with, the Jesus film itself. They produce lots of other content. So here's just a short example of what the Jesus film produces to reach people for Christ. I've been looking out my window a lot lately trying to think, think about life, think about beautiful things. My dad was a particle physicist. <laughs> yeah, he really thought about stuff. He said, the more I study our world, the more convinced I am that someone made it all. Hmm. Okay, I'm thinking, if someone made everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, me, then that someone is out there, somewhere, or maybe even right here, close to me. My dad told me, God is listening. Maybe I should start that conversation. It's a really simple video. There's many like this that Jesus Film has produced to be used by people like us 
missionaries around the world to start conversations with people, to, to just pursue evangelistic opportunities, opportunities to engage in those conversations about who God is and what he has done. And so what our goal is for this mission, pro, or for this mission conference is to expose you to, number one, what God is doing around the world through various different forms of, of media and how the Jesus Film is a partner ministry for um, lots of different mission agencies and missionaries around the world, but also how some of those tools can be used locally to reach out to friends, family, neighbors, co-workers with the message of the gospel. So we're just going to uh, continue exposing you to some of these conversation starter videos. That's what that one's called. There's some apologetics videos. I'll show you one of those um, next week that answers some big questions about the Bible, those sort of things. But please make a focus. Uh, mark your calendars for that um, last weekend in February. We'd love for you to be a part of that weekend with us. Turn with me now to um, 1 Timothy chapter 6. One of the most famous speeches in American history goes like this. Four score and seven years ago. You know where this is going, right? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. November 1863, President Abraham Lincoln at the site of the Battle of Gettysburg, months after this gruesome battle as a part of the American Civil War, he delivered those remarks, and he spoke confidently that this nation was founded on the proposition that all men were created equal. And that obviously is not a new concept, because in the summer of 1776, these words were penned. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Words from the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. This concept was there from our nation's founding, that all men are created equal. And yet, this is a question that has been interpreted and applied in different ways. And we bring ourselves this week to a passage in Scripture in which the concept of slavery comes up. And anytime you read in your Bible the word slavery, you should have questions. What is the Bible teaching us? What is the Bible saying to us about one group of people holding, possessing, owning another group of people? Does the Bible condone slavery? It's a question that Christians must answer and must wrestle with in a real way. And, and it's especially vital in our moment in culture and in history. You know, there's, there's really not a question within this church or within our nation of whether slavery is permissible or not. We have answered that question. But the question that gets thrown at the Bible is if, we as a society, as a nation, have outlawed slavery, has de have decided that slavery is an unethical practice, then why? Why does the Bible talk about it in what seems like an accepting way? Because what happens in a culture that no longer accepts slavery as an institution, 
is people now criticize the Bible and say, but the Bible, the Bible supported slavery. There were slaves that were in the New Testament. There were slaves in the Old Testament. Both Testaments seem to approve of this practice and give instruction for this practice. Therefore, 21st century Christian, we need to know what the Bible does and does not say on this vital ethical issue. It is a modern day issue because in a society that is moving away from the Bible in countless ways, this is one of those those targets that they go after to say this is why the Bible is outdated. This is why the Bible is, is wrong, is unethical, is primitive. Because the Bible, the critics would say, condones the practice of slavery. We need to know what the Bible says about slavery. We need to know how we respond to those accusations. And so this morning is going to be a very different type of sermon for us. We will get to 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. In fact, I'm going to read it for you just in a second here. But then we're going to go away from 1 Timothy 6 for a little while to really do some hard work on what the biblical teaching is. We're going to go historical context. We're going to go cultural context. We're going to go Old Testament. We're going to go New Testament because we're going to find out and we're going to really struggle through what the Bible as a whole says about this issue so that we can rightly understand these two verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, these two verses, let me read them to you, and I'll talk a little bit about these verses before we go on. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, here's where we are for this Sunday. This passage about slavery and about honor. And it makes sense in context to one degree. All Paul's been talking about for all of chapter 5 is honor and different categories, different ways to show honor to people. We talked a few weeks ago about showing honor to widows, showing honor to every generation, having multiple relationships with people across generations, showing honor to whom honor is due, showing honor to those in leadership was the concept for last week. Paul continues that same mindset of into chapter 6, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Slaves show honor to masters. So if we are going to understand this passage and understand what the Bible says about slavery, we're going to go through this in a few steps. And the first three are right there, or there are three steps that are right there on the board for you. This is our, this is our roadmap for this morning. We are going to understand slavery in Paul's mind. What does Paul mean by bond servant, as the ESV translated? Some of your versions might translate servant, some might translate slave. All three words are actually accurate translations, but they kind of give different connotations. So we need to understand slavery in Paul's mind first. Then we're going to look at the Bible and slavery as a whole. And then we're going to look at how we must respond and what we must do in light of what we hear today. So first, understanding slavery in Paul's mind. Let's talk 
Old Testament background, Hebrew servanthood. Leviticus chapter 25 is not 1 Timothy, but we're going to go, and we're going to go, here's where we'll go. We'll go Hebrew servanthood in the Hebrew world, what slavery looked like in the Hebrew world, what slavery looked like in the Roman world, and then what slavery has looked like in our more recent cultural context, okay, our world. Hebrew servanthood, I'll tell you, was designed in the Old Testament to provide for the poor. I'll show you that from Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, i.e., your brother becomes your slave, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve the jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan, return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. Elsewhere, Exodus 21, um, God talks about slavery within the Hebrew nation Um, and within the Mosaic law in Exodus 21. And in Exodus 21, he defines what this year of Jubilee would be as it applies to slavery. The slaves in the Mosaic law would serve for six years, and on year seven would go free. And there are great restrictions. We'll get there in a minute. There are great restrictions as to how you treat your slaves in the Old Testament. The same in the New Testament. And so it is not necessarily the viewpoint that we have when we think of slavery in our modern world. The Old Testament does does establish laws that regulate a slavery system, but it is a system designed to lift people out of poverty, and it is a system in which people serve temporarily as slaves, only so that they lift themselves out of poverty. That's more of an indentured servanthood type of system than what we think of when we hear the word slavery or servanthood. But look specifically at what I just read from Leviticus 25. God, twice in this passage, references bringing the nation out of Egypt. Now, why do you think he did that? Because they were slaves there. Because in Egypt, his people knew what slavery was. And when God says in Leviticus 25, 42, they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as slaves. He says to a nation that was within recent memory, in the minds of everyone hearing this, they remembered what it was like to be slaves in Egypt. And he said, no, not you guys. You know what it is like to be slaves. And you are not going to be treating slaves or enslaving people in that way. God is setting up his nation to be different from the world around them. 
he is giving them restrictions and he is showing them how they interact, not just with people within their own nation, but other nations as well. He does not allow his people, he does not instruct his people to enslave other peoples in the way we think of modern day slavery. Roman slavery, something else. So we have the Hebrew world. Now let's talk about the Roman world. This is the world of the first century into which Paul is writing. So Paul would have background into the Hebrew world, but now he's living in the Roman world. What was slavery like there? Well, just so you know that one estimate shows that the entire Roman population in that day, the Roman Empire, was as many as 150 million people. And of those, a third, a third of those people within the Roman Empire were slaves. So think about Paul's context here. Paul's writing all these letters to churches, and he knows that within any given community that he writes a letter, whether it's Galatia or Ephesus or the island of Crete or anywhere else he's writing a letter, he is writing to a population that two-thirds of the population are free and one-third is enslaved in various different definitions of what slavery could mean. The Roman system of slavery was not monolithic. It was not simple. It was very, very complicated. And so there were lots of different types of slavery that were represented within that culture and within that society. Number one, within Roman slavery of the first century, it was not fundamentally based on race or ethnicity. There were There were examples of conquered peoples becoming enslaved, but slavery within the first century was not a a system of racial injustice where one group was oppressed by another group. Slavery was more economically based than racially based. Many slaves, many within the Roman Empire in the first century were voluntary slaves that would, again, serve as indentured servants. That's why we see in the New Testament translation so often bond servants. Bond servants are people that for a period of time sell themselves into the labor of somebody else. This was a common way of learning a trade in the ancient Roman world. That they would indenture themselves to a wealthier tradesman so that they could learn a trade, earn money after a period of time. They would then be released from that and be able to gain, purchase Roman citizenship on their own by learning a trade, by working, by becoming um, uh, a skilled tradesman within the community. So they would often sell themselves into slavery in order to be provided for until they could support themselves later. That's actually what Leviticus 25 is talking about. That some Hebrews, God was prepared for some Hebrews doing that to each other. Selling themselves to each other in order to pay off debts and in order to learn trades and store up money and income for themselves. Now, I've given you a couple types of Roman slavery. There is the heinous, evil sort of slavery going on in the Roman world in Paul's day as well. So we, we keep that in mind, that not all slavery was the same in Paul's day, so slavery is not a simple definition within the New Testament. There was some that was that was humane and an economic strategy of lifting people out of poverty and giving people greater job skills, but there was the type of slavery that involved uh, harsh, forced manual labor, that involved physical abuse, and that involved sexual abuse. It was heinous, difficult, terrible 
inhumane, oppressive slavery within Paul's world too. So it didn't look one certain way within the Roman Empire. Now what about our world? I told you a little bit about indentured servanthood as a, as a type of slavery. That actually has some history within um, the United States as well. Um, it was estimated that one-third in, early, in the early days of the um, American experiment, so to speak, one-third of white European immigrants came to America as indentured servants. They came wanting to learn a skill, wanting to hop on a boat with a wealthy, wealthier person and came to this country as indentured servants. That was more similar to the Hebrew idea than what we know of as slavery. But what we know most, what every mind in this room goes to when you hear the word slavery is the African slave trade and its existence within our own nation and the heinous, the evil, the wickedness that happened within that period of time. It is good that we know our own nation's history. It is good that we know that within the institution of slavery in our own nation, there was permanent ownership. Not, not temporary, not after seven years. <clears throat> Thank you, Ryan, by the way, I saw that. Um, <clears throat> after seven years, in the Old Testament, you could be freed from slavery. That's not what, has hap- that's not what happened in the early days of our country. It was generation after generation, born into slavery, owned by families, bought and sold various times with no opportunity for freedom. That is not the type of slavery that is envisioned in the Old Testament. It is partially what could have been happening in the Roman Empire, but it is not necessarily the majority of what was happening in the Roman Empire as Paul was writing. Uh, The slavery in the U.S. was permanent lesser status for a specific race, a specific group of people. No opportunity for families to work their way out. And you know what? Without the Bible, without the Spirit of God, without the movement of the church and Christianity, that system would not have been overturned in the way it was. It was the Bible that led to the overturn of slavery within the Western world. It was men like William Wilberforce, who in 1833 was able to finally complete this movement of outlawing slavery within the British um, colonies. Years later, within the United States of America, slavery was, um, was then outlawed. And so we have to deal with this question still. But I'm first going to tell you, understanding slavery in Paul's mind is difficult, it's complex, and we know some of what he meant. We don't know all of what he saw from slavery, but we know historically it was not what our nation saw from slavery. That we can know for certain. And so this is not when the New Testament or Old Testament talk about slavery. It should never be used as a as a defense of what happened within our own nation over a period of time. So let's talk about what the Bible does say about slavery. We'll go through this in a few steps. Number one, and I'll just give you the, the few steps right now, and then we'll unpack them. The Bible and slavery. Number one, the Bible condemns any view that diminishes the value of one group of people in comparison to another group of people. Number two, the Bible's instructions regarding slavery do not imply approval of slavery. We'll, we'll demonstrate that. And number three, the Bible protects slaves. Number four, the Bible encourages slaves. 
And finally, number five, the Bible actually redefines slavery and what that means for us. So number one, the Bible condemns any view that diminishes the value of one group of people. More simply, the Bible defines people in the same way that the Gettysburg Address did and the same way that the Declaration of Independence did. The Bible defines humanity, mankind, as being created equal. Genesis 1.27 is the theological grounding for that. By the way, Genesis 1.27, if you don't know it, you should know it. It is a grounding for so much Christian theological, ethical behavior. We need to know Genesis 1.27 and the implications it has for us that go far-reaching in any number of cultural issues. The abortion debate builds off of Genesis 1.27. Racism, Genesis 1.27 has something to say. LGBTQ issues, Genesis 1.27 has something to say. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So much of what we believe as Christians finds a pure and solid foundation right here. Because when God says, I created human beings, not just a man, but all mankind, all human beings are created in the image of God. That means inherent worth. That means eternal value to God the creator. And it means that in the eyes of God, they are seen as equal because all human beings are created in his image. And all human beings are created to reflect his image to the world around, to give honor and glory to God. All human beings were created for that purpose. This is Genesis 1. Genesis 3 messes everything up. And so much of our theology, again, for any current issue, for any issue we face, we start with Genesis 1, and then we see Genesis 3 just blows everything up. Because it's Genesis 3, the first man and the first woman, they sinned, and then everything that Genesis 1 meant was, was meant to accomplish and reflect got got messed up by sin entering the world. So no longer are those beings created in God's image properly reflecting him to each other or to the world around. Now those human beings, each one of them, every nation, tongue, and tribe that was created in, him, in his image with inherent value, with inherent worth, now we're all sinners. And now we have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with the implications of that. So after... God created all humanity in his image, sin entered the world, and then human beings started to notice, notice the difference between themselves. And one group looked down on another group, and a group went to war with another group. And these rivalries, these divisions, they began to compound over generations and generations of sinfulness. But that was not the way God created the world. You want to see what the New Testament says about this same issue. I say that the Bible says all men are created equal. Galatians 3.28 says that in Christ. So what was broken in, Galatia, in, in Genesis 3 is made new and discussed in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's God's intent from, Galatians, or from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3 to Galatians 3. 
all human beings created in God's image, then all sin, and then in Christ, all are made new and one in Christ, so there's no distinctions of race, there's no distinctions of slavery or free, there are no distinctions within the body of Christ. Ephesians 6, another place that Paul speaks about slavery. Master, do the same to them. Stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This is a warning Paul gives to slave owners, to slave masters. Be careful how you treat them, because God doesn't see the distinction between you and them. And God will judge you accordingly, with no partiality, because there is no distinction in God the Father between one who serves as a slave in this life and one who serves as a master in this life. The Bible condemns a view that diminishes the value of one group of people in comparison to another. Next, the Bible's instructions regarding slavery do not imply approval of slavery. Distinctions between people groups exist after the fall. We know that. We see that throughout the scriptures, throughout world history. Racism, racial distinctions, classism, and, pro- and prejudice of all kinds. They're all products of the fall. And so the Bible emphasizes that in the end, those distinctions will fall away. Galatians 3 shows us that picture. You're all one in Christ. But then the picture is really fully displayed, Revelation 21 and 22. The new heaven, the new earth, in Christ's eternal kingdom, there are no distinctions between nations. There are no distinctions between linguistic groups. There are no distinctions between races or ethnicities. There are no distinctions between classes and socioeconomic level. There is no distinction at all within the eternal kingdom of Christ. And God puts that on the page in Revelation 21 and 22 to tell us Genesis 1 was the plan. Genesis 3 made a whole lot of stuff go wrong and lots of ways of thinking entered the world because of sin. And by the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22, all is made new and there's no distinctions. So it's pretty clear. The Bible does not imply a support of distinction between human beings and that all slavery, all slavery is temporary. There's no slaves in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no masters in the new heaven and the new earth. There's children of God, the the bride of Christ. Those distinctions don't matter anymore. They have all fallen away. So what Ephesians 6, 9 is trying to tell slave owners is, your standing is temporary. Don't mess it up. Don't treat people in such a way that it will result in judgment for you because that distinction of slave and master is going to fall away and you will have consequences. If you do not act as a Christian, if you do not represent Christ well in your treatment of other people, rather than condemning um, one group of people or condoning slavery, the Bible protects slaves. Exodus 21, 26, and 27. Again, I told you about Exodus 21 and the, the, what it says about slaves and how after seven years a slave would be set free, that it was a temporary system to lift people out of poverty. Also in Exodus 21, you see that if a master strikes his slave in the eye or in the mouth, the Mosaic law required 
the master to allow that slave to go free. Physical abuse of slavery in the Hebrew law meant that person who is not a possession of that master, but rather an indentured servant seeking to pay off a debt or gain a skill or gain a greater um, social or, or a greater economic status, that person, that slave, is set free when that person is physically abused. That's the Mosaic Law from Exodus 21. Also, I'll tell you, 1 Timothy 1. This isn't the first time slavery showed up in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.10. The Bible, God, Paul, con- condemns slave traders, kidnappers, man-stealers. The word in um, 1 Timothy 1.10, it gets put there in a list of other categories of sin. But what Paul says is that sexually immoral men, men who practice in homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Those are the people that receive judgment from God. It is very clear in 1 Timothy 1.10 that he is listing a category of sinful behaviors. And what the word means there that gets translated in the ESV as enslaver, it might be translated man-stealer or kidnapper in your translation, it's a word for people that forcibly enslave others. The Bible has no room for that. The Bible sees that as a sin. That is clear from what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. Forced slavery is and was always a sin within the New Testament teaching. The Bible protects a system of slavery that is not like what we know. Sorry, the Bible protects slaves within a system of slavery that is different from what we are used to or what we are used to thinking of. Exodus 21 says the same thing that 1 Timothy 1 says. Whoever kidnaps a person and owns that person or sells that person is put to death in the Mosaic Law. So again, what we know of as slavery, what we've heard of in our nation's history in the African slave trade, that was condemned Old Testament and New Testament. Forcibly enslaving somebody is always outlawed in the Bible. The Bible requires that slaves are financially provided for in Leviticus 25. You don't physically abuse them. You don't cause them to live in poor standards. You provide for them in every way. And the Bible promotes eventual freedom for slavery. This is Leviticus 25. It's Exodus 21. It's Deuteronomy 15. The Old Testament teaching of slavery is a temporary system by which somebody is able to make their way out of poverty. And after six years, on year seven, the Sabbath year, the Jubilee year, is a celebration as a slave is set free and entered in, enters into society and into the marketplace with a new skill and new uh, financial flexibility. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages slaves, any slave that has the opportunity to go free, Paul says, go free. Were you a bondservant when you were called to Christ? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. 1 Corinthians 7. The book of Philemon is a book about a slave that has escaped. He's a Christian, or he becomes a Christian after escaping. The man's name is Onesimus. The slave master's name is Philemon. Onesimus escapes Philemon, and Paul says, hey Onesimus, or hey Philemon, Onesimus is a brother now. Set him free. Paul doesn't suggest it. Paul requires that that Philemon set Onesimus free. So the Bible protects slaves by condemning physical abuse, condemning kidnapping, and forced slavery, require that slaves are well 
requiring that slaves are well provided for and promoting freedom for slaves and requiring freedom for slaves. Different than what the hostile culture says, the Bible says about slavery. The Bible also encourages individual slaves. And that's really what this passage is about. It's written to uplift people who did not have significant social, societal rights. They did not have control of their own circumstances. The Bible is encouraging these people. There's two categories of people in 1 Timothy 6. See, after all of that, we're finally back to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6 verse 1 relates to a Christian slave who has a non-Christian master. And in this category, Paul says to the Christian slave, show honor. And it's worthwhile to note that the bond servants or slaves in 1 Timothy 6 are under a yoke. So I think what Paul is saying here is this is not the nice, comfortable type of slavery that we've been talking about. I said Romans 6, or that in the Roman world, there is actually a system of very abusive, hostile slavery that exists within the Roman world. And that is described as slaves under a yoke from non-Christian slave owners in 1 Timothy 6. So these are people being treated harshly. These are people who have little rights. These are people who are experiencing great wickedness and hardship. And he's saying, submit for the glory of God so that the name of God may be honored and not reviled. Even if you are mistreated in your situation, be faithful, show honor, even when they don't deserve it, show honor so that God's name is honored and glorified. The reminder for all of us in any circumstance is that we follow a suffering Savior. We follow a Savior that suffered far beyond any of us will ever suffer or will ever be asked to suffer, ever expected to suffer. That suffering servant went from heaven and, and, and lowered himself to become a man and live in lesser circumstances on this earth. He was beaten, he was ridiculed, and he did die. He died a sinner's death, a rebel's death, a slave's death. And the death that Jesus died, he died for masters who were abusive and for slaves who were abused and everybody in between. So that we would all know that the suffering servant had made a provision for each one of us. So, First Timothy 6.1, a Christian slave suffering under the yoke burden of a non-Christian master. First Timothy 6.2, a Christian slave that is serving a Christian. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. What Paul is telling us there is that you should not use brotherhood as an opportunity to forego your commitment and your responsibility. I do not believe that Paul is speaking to um, Christian slaves who are under the yoke of Christian masters and being abused. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's talking about, in verse, in verse 2, more of that indentured servanthood sort of thing. If you commit yourself to a Christian master, don't just assume that because you're both Christians now, you're going to get out of your end of the deal. Don't forego your commitment because you are both Christians. He is not, I 
he is not telling Christians to suffer abuse at the hands of other Christians in 1 Timothy 6. He's very clear, remember? Ephesians 6. Uh, can I just remind you of this? Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. What do they all have in common? They're all written to the same city. So what Paul said in Ephesians 6 about master's treatment of slaves, he already said, remember this, when he's talking in 1 Timothy 6.2 to Christian slaves to submit to their masters, he has already told in Ephesians 6, the previous letter, masters, treat your slaves well. Your bond servants, your indentured servants, treat them well, particularly those who are in Christian. So he talks to the masters first in Ephesians 6 before he talks to the servants in 1 Timothy 6. The reminder that the Bible gives us, the reason we went to Revelation 21 and 22, slavery is not the end. That there are no slaves in heaven. There are no masters in heaven, except for the way we're going to redefine it in a second. One day, slavery as we know it in this life will be no more. Christ suffered and set for us an example. Paul, the very one who is writing these lines to sufferers, is one who set an example of suffering himself. Paul says that he received the 39 lashes multiple times. Let me tell you what that means. 40 lashes was said to kill a man, and that was a sentence that they were not able to enact without the official government enacting that, that sentence. So the worst that somebody could do, other than the governor of the, of the local district, was to give somebody 39 lashes. Paul received it multiple times. Oh, by the way, most people died from 39 lashes. But Paul didn't. Paul suffered. He did it multiple times for the sake of the glory of God. He is not asking people to suffer when he has not suffered himself. He is asking people to endure what he has endured himself. In the same way, Christ is not asking any of us or any Christian from any point in, in human history, Christ does not ask people to suffer beyond what he suffered for them. The earliest disciples in the book of Acts, they are beaten. And what do they do in response to being beaten? They worship and they glory that they were considered worthy to suffer for Christ's name. What the Bible tells us from beginning to end is that if you really want to follow Christ, if you really want to be a child of God, you will suffer. But you will not suffer without any knowledge of how the story ends, of what the ultimate reality is. You follow a Savior who suffers, and you're called to suffer along the way. Philippians 2.7, the Bible redefines slavery for us. Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Let me just take a moment here and say, I've used the word slave, servant, bond servant somewhat interchangeably. The most common New Testament word is the Greek word doulos. Uh, Philippians 2.7, doulos. 1 Timothy 6.2, doulos. It gets translated as bond servant in 1 Timothy 6.1 and 2. It gets translated as servant here in Philippians 2.7. Other, other places it's translated as save, as slave. It all means the same thing, but it's a complex term because, as I've already said, there are multiple ways of defining slavery within first century Rome. So we just don't always have a great picture of what was meant by that type of slavery these people were suffering. But we know that just as human 
slaves are called to submit to masters. So Jesus took the form of a slave when he was born in the likeness of men. Mark 10 says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom. Jesus came to pay a debt in the same way that a slave would seek to pay a debt by selling themselves as an indentured servant. Christ took the form of slavery and took the debt for us. So now, I told you about Philemon, right? I told you about Philemon and, and Onesimus. Paul wrote this book, this letter, to a slave owner named Philemon about a runaway slave named Onesimus. And the way that Paul starts the letter, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to Philemon. Paul uses the first few words of that personal letter, that personal correspondence, to redefine slavery and say, Philemon, your relationship with Onesimus, your brothers now. And the way we define slavery now is that we're all slaves to Christ Jesus, that we're servants of Christ Jesus, that we are meant to live our lives now to bring him honor, to work for, for the good of his kingdom, to forego all of our desires against what his kingdom, what he is doing in his kingdom, and what he longs to see for us. Romans 6 calls Christians slaves to righteousness and not slaves to sin. You are all slaves to Christ Jesus and slaves to righteousness according to the New Testament. Peter does this in 2 Peter 1.1. He calls himself a servant or a slave. Jude does this in opening his letter. He calls himself a slave. Revelation 1.1 says that all believers are slaves to Christ Jesus. So, the Bible, in dismantling what we know as humans of slaves and masters, the ultimate goal of the scriptures is for every one of us to be complete in Christ and to serve Christ as his slaves. Not focused on our own rights, not focused on our own good, on our own blessing, on our own provision, on our own comfort, but focused on him and what he has done for us and how he's building his kingdom around us. What we must do We'll get there, guys. Hang with me just another couple minutes. We must, in light of the biblical teaching that we've heard today, not just 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, but all the other passages I've referenced, we must, as Christians, stand against any ideology that limits the value of another person. It's clear. It's, it's, it's not a question within the Scriptures. That means that Christians stand against racism. That means that Christians do not treat people of different races, of different classes, as lesser human beings than we are because God sees them as all created in his image. But there's something else we must reference here, that one of the complexities of the, the moment in time that we live in, our culture, our society, is that many modern diversity and inclusion initiatives are not just about racism but they've adopted worldviews that are contrary to Scripture and snuck in along with it that we're not just supposed to learn about accepting and valuing people of different races, but we have all of this LGBT ideology that mixed in there too. And this is where it gets really complex and where Christians must practice discernment to, to know that we, as the church of Jesus, as the bride of Christ, we stand against racism. But we do not 
We do not treat LGBT as, as a racial minority. We, we cannot equate those two things as many movements in modern culture seek to do and are trying to get us to do. We must stand for the truth of God. Certainly, children of God show love and respect to all people, regardless of skin color and ethnicity, and also regardless of sin and behavior. We show kindness, we show love, but we do not accept sin. We do not accept lifestyles that are contrary to Scripture. We do not accept those or equate those with racial minorities. It is an injustice to all groups when we do that. It is an injustice to sinners who are not being told that their behavior is sinful. It is injustice to minorities who are being equated with sinful behavior. That is heinous and ridiculous. We should never do that. It is injustice to those of us that are allowing ourselves to be fooled along the way. It is an injustice to God and his word. So we stand against racism and we adopt and we stand for the truth about sinful lifestyles that get equivalated or that get um, equated, equivalated, I made up words, equated with other issues. Let me say something else though. You, we, we need to talk about slavery just for another minute, guys. Because there are more slaves living in today's world than at any moment in human history. And we need to be concerned about that too. So we can't just pretend that because we've reached a moment in culture and society where we know that slavery is wrong, that we've just completed this whole thing and we don't need to worry about it anymore. Because all over the world, there are those that are in poverty, there are those that are in, um, with lesser rights, or still uh, racial and ethnic enslavement is still going on all over the world. And let me tell you the largest industry. The largest industry is the sex slave industry. The largest category of slaves in the world are sex slaves. Usually young girls that get kidnapped, get sold into slavery. Let me tell you something simple too. This is, this is one you're not going to expect. I'm going to tell you a simple step to fighting slavery in our day. This is for the men in the room. We, as men, as Christians, as sons of God, we stand and we stand strong against the sin of pornography. Because you know how, how sex traffickers make money? You know how the sex trade makes money? Internet pornography. It's the number way of funding that industry. So when, when we, as sons of God, as, as children of God, as brothers in Christ, and women look at pornography too, so I'll include you in this. When we go online searching for pornography, the ads that our eyes see fund the porn ministry or porn industry and therefore fund sex trafficking all around the world. So brothers, sisters, stand against it. Say no. Doesn't feel like pornography should be a part of a sermon on slavery, but in our modern world it is. And I'm going to tell you, brothers, if you have a problem, if you're fighting an addiction, if you're fighting a sin, come and talk to me. Come and talk to somebody. And let's do the work together to fight against that sin. Because there are children around the world whose slavery is being funded by internet pornography that is being viewed by American Christians. It should not be the case. We stand against any ideology that limits the value of another, of another person or oppresses another person. That's what we must do. And we stand for the Bible when it's attacked. And when those cultural trends 
come at you and say, I don't believe the Bible because the Bible condones slavery, you say, no, it does not. Let's sit down. Let's talk about this. There are great resources out here. In this sermon, I have taken a lot from a sermon from David Platt in a, in a commentary on 1 Timothy. I've taken a lot from what John Stott's sermon on this passage says. I've taken a lot from what Alistair Begg's sermon on this passage says. So many good resources out there to explain, to combat this trend that says the Bible is outdated, oppressive, racist, and pro-slavery. We have to be clear on what the Bible does and does not say, and we protect it because in it we see the gospel. And simply, finally, what we must do is we treat people with honor. We live in respect and show honor to those in authority. We don't show less respect to non-believers who are in authority. We don't show less respect to believers who are in authority. One of the great sermons I listened to on this passage made the focus in this passage on what happens when two members of a church are out on the roads together. One's a police officer and one is just an ordinary citizen. And the police officer pulls over the ordinary citizen. Does that ordinary citizen expect that his brother in Christ, fellow church member, is going to let him off the hook for the crime that he committed? No. We still submit within the structures of society, though we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We treat people with honor, those that are in positions of authority as Christians, those that are in positions of authority as non-Christians, and those who we have authority over. We treat all people with honor. And lastly, I'll ask the band, you guys can start coming up. Lastly, remember the eternal definition of slavery, that there's no distinction between humans and God's eternal kingdom, but that God does seek for us to live in such obedience, such dependence, such indebtedness to him and what he has done that we are joyfully, I mean it, joyfully described as slaves of Christ. For Paul, it was a badge of honor to call himself a servant, slave of Christ Jesus. We as Christians should be proud to name the name of Christ in all circumstances because think about the indebtedness of what it means to be so sinful that we could do nothing to get out of our situation. We could do nothing to pay our own debts. We had to have somebody else pay the ransom money for us because we were kidnapped into slavery by the, by the enemy and we were slaves to the sin that we committed. And Jesus bought us out of that. And so we are believers. We are children of God, not because of our good decisions or our good works, our good intentions but because we were purchased. Christ died for us. He suffered for us. And now he's called us to serve him in all willingness, to suffer, to, to, to serve to the uttermost limit for the sake of his kingdom. Let's stand and worship. gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I owe my 
It has been paid for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow.
pray with me. Father, I'm compelled to praise you right now that my eternal state and my eternal soul is not dependent on my own efforts. Because Father, I as a, as a human, I'm, I'm broken by the pressures I experience now. And I couldn't imagine the pressures, the, the weight of what it would feel like to have all the pressure of my own eternity on my own efforts, on my own goodness, on my own servitude. But Father, I have been reconciled, been made righteous, not through my own efforts, but through Christ in me. God, I pray that this message, this simple message of the gospel sinks into every heart and every mind this morning. That we would see ourselves in times of suffering as the early disciples did. That we would praise you for being found worthy to suffer in your name. Father, that we would endure even the harshest circumstances for the sake of your glory and your kingdom. Father, we pray that we would be slaves to you. That we would be so committed, so desperate, so in need. That we would not even live our lives as individuals, but that Christ would live through us in every circumstance, in every opportunity. Father, we're here this morning not as people who have anything figured out, but as people who are so desperate and so dependent on who you are and what you've done. So fill us, Father, as we go to serve you. And Father, as we receive your blessing, we praise you and we worship you because it's only through Christ that we can receive these gifts. And through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Remain standing, receive the blessing from the Lord for those whose blood, whose Christ's blood has shed, has been shed for you. You've been purchased by him. And you are new in him. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.